welcome to Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. My name is Valentina Mann. My name is Anton Jäger. And today we are talking to Dr. Orr Rosenboim. Dr. Rosenboim is currently lecturer in modern history at City University of London, and before that was a junior research fellow at Queen's College, Cambridge. She holds degrees from the University of Bologna and Oxford University, and received her doctorate in politics and international studies from Cambridge. Her book, The Emergence of Globalism, Visions of World Order in Britain and the United States, 1939-1950, was recently published by Princeton University Press. Or thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start out with a question about your intellectual biography. When and how did you first come to the study of intellectual history? Well, it all started in my second year of undergrads in um, contemporary history in Bologna, uh, when I took a course in um, history of political doctrines, as it's called in Italian, with uh, Carlo Galli, who became one of my preferred uh, professors and scholars about 20th century political thought. And uh, in this course, we basically raced through all the great thinkers uh, in a very charismatic manner, as typical of uh, Italian academia. And, and that was my, my first encounter with the subject matter. And we, we did a bit of readings of the core text of Machiavelli, Hobbes, Locke, and so on. And it was really just the first taste for me. Because afterwards, in my third year, I did an exchange at UCLA, and there I was able to take seminars with Perry Anderson and Saul Friedlander, and they actually uh, showed me how I could also do research in intellectual history and find my own voice. So I was able to encounter ideas about empire, about uh, 20th century technology and modernity, and obviously about the Holocaust with uh, Saul Friedlander. And this diverse perspective, diversity of perspectives about 20th century political thought really intrigued me and made me think that this is possibly an interesting field of study for myself. So um, the next question was, when exactly did you decide on embarking on an academic career itself? When was the moment you realized that is what I want to do? So I suppose the answer kind of stems from my previous answer in the sense when I started to do my own research. So my first experience was really at UCLA, but afterwards when I did my master's in, in Oxford, and also when I did my undergrad dissertation in Bologna about Kant's cosmopolitanism and some contemporary interpretations, as the title was not, not very dramatic, but uh, it was uh, a first kind of attempt for me to do something of my own. And I just found writing and researching ideas in the past, the thing that really triggered my curiosity more than anything else. Obviously, the uh, liberty that an academic career gives you to follow your curiosities and to realize projects that really just began with a random thought and then end up being a written book was something that attracted me a lot. So you have studied politics and history in various places, not only two countries, or in actually three, counting the United States as well, but also in various universities. Um, so could you tell us a bit about what varieties of intellectual history you have encountered? 
Yes. Yeah, so as you say, I, I have experienced different, let's say, national traditions, but also different disciplines, because I started off with contemporary history and political thought in Bologna, which is done in quite a specific way with emphasis, not so much on context, but perhaps more on concepts because uh, it's studied as history of political doctrines. And so what counts as a doctrine is really a contested question. And that led me to, let's say, the first encounter with the subject. Then afterwards, when I moved to Oxford, I actually did something very different because it was a master's in imperial and global history. So there my focus was not so much on the intellectual aspects, that was my own research, but the, the formation I received was more in what empire means means for the global age, let's say, and how can we do imperial history without being imperialistic ourselves? And this is a question that in Oxford resonated very much with the way that history is taught because of its uh, its own disciplinary history, let's say, because of the way that imperial history was connected also to the practices of empire through Oxford being this kind of hub for intellectual ideas and practices. Uh, and so that was, let's say, the second stage. My third stage really was when I came to Cambridge, I started doing my PhD in politics and international studies. So no longer really in history, although I was closely associated with the history of political thought bunch. I was not really um, just limited to historical research because I was trying to do work that would speak also to international relations scholars and to international relations theorists. And so that allowed me to open up to this whole new field that was for me unknown before, which was um, kind of more political theory, international theory, and contemporary concerns. And so I think my work is really influenced by this mixture of approaches and disciplines from history of political thought to um, imperial and global history and then uh, international theory. And all of these are kind of mixed in a, in a weird way in my work. A central concern of your book is the importance of the space and scale of politics, which you trace by charting the proposals for world order at the state, regional, federal, and finally completely global scale. Could you tell us a bit more about this spatial perspective and point to the strengths of approaching the history of political thought in terms of its spatiality? Yes, yeah, so for me, what was interesting about this project was that it allowed us to think more concretely about the uh, spatial components of politics. I think that often enough thinkers of, let's say, of the past were questioning the basic units of politics, that the state was not always the main hub of political order. But this, this um, let's say, complexity of space and scale that emerged in past thoughts about international order and world order was not always central for historians who looked at the past. And um, I think that recently, well, scholars talk about the spatial turn in sociology, international relations, there was a growing attention to the importance of thinking through scale. And I think this has now arrived also to intellectual history because it allows us to challenge the basic categories that we use. So uh, what I was trying to do is to show that 
really by looking at different scales of politics, we can also see the relations between uh, the individual and the community, see relations between different communities from various perspectives, and perhaps challenge the basic tropes that we usually employ when we think about politics through either the state or international relations. So again, the relations between states, while actually uh, ideas about politics can be much more complex and diverse. So um, for me, the notion of space and scale really helped to organize the material and the ideas that I was trying to present in the book in a, in a rational, but also sometimes, let's say, unexpected uh, ways, because I was trying to show that while world order was thought of through different conceptions of scale, it was all part of the same kind of perception of the future of the world that would be inherently global, in the sense that the point of reference would have to be to the globe and not only to specific forms of political order, such as uh, the state as we know it. So really the, the focus on scale and uh, space was helpful to break down politics to different units than we typically look at, uh, and perhaps to challenge our thought a little bit to see what the world is really made of. A recurring theme throughout the book is pluralism, or more specifically, the various ways in which historical actors engaged with various conceptions of pluralism. Could you tell us a bit more about these conceptions of pluralism and how they related to various thinkers' visions of what global politics and particularly cooperation would look like? When I did the research for this book, I in continuously encountered the term pluralism or a plural world order in, in various uh, declinations. And I was curious because, uh, like you said, uh, pluralism can be many, many different things. And so I really wanted to highlight the various kinds of pluralism that made part of the globalist visions of world order in the 1940s. And these include, for example, a pluralism of political forms. So if we look, for example, at the Chicago Constitutionalists that I examine in one of the chapters, they were keen to show that their vision of world order that was based on this new constitution, it would include the whole world, uh, was not um, uh, limited to any specific form of political order. Let's say that they included both democratic and liberal states and non-liberal states. And so in that sense, their pluralism was a pluralism of form and ideology. Others, like uh, Michael Polanyi, were keen to endorse another kind of pluralism that was based on, uh, let's say, individual choices. So his idea of a liberal pluralism was based on the notion that each individual could choose their own path and organize their lives according to their own preferences and traditions. But at the same time that there was enough flexibility in the liberal order to accommodate that kind of diversity without collapsing. Another form of pluralism that came from a surprising source was um, the Catholic notion of pluralism that uh, Jacques Maritain and Luigi Sturzo advanced. So in that chapter, I examine the idea that the state must be uh, pluralist and the world order must endorse a kind of pluralistic uh, worldview because this is the only way to enable 
Catholicism to thrive and survive in the post-war era without uh, limiting its uh, presence to the private sphere. And so pluralism was able to allow this kind of diversity. Yet what I'm also trying to show in the book is the limits of pluralism and the limits of realizing a pluralistic world order. So in a sense, when we think about the Chicago constitutionalists, there is uh, uh, an evident preference for democracy as a form of government for them. Uh, however, this came into some kind of perhaps contrast or at least tension with their pluralistic world order. So how can you endorse democracy and at the same time accept also illiberal regimes like Saudi Arabia or other Russia, other countries that were definitely not democratic? So how can pluralism really be the basic principle of world order uh, if democracy was to be the political regime that the new constitution preferred. There was definitely a tension there that these thinkers refused to acknowledge. Uh, we also can see different tensions between uh, Jacques Maritain's embrace of pluralism and at the same time his theological preference of Catholicism as the only way to redeem humanity. And so there were values that he thought were universal and they were definitely grounded in Catholic creed. And so the embrace of pluralism was in a sense uh, limited. And what I'm trying to show in, in the book is that often enough thinkers who were, let's say, trying to open up and to present a pluralistic worldview and really in a very benevolent manner, trying to think about world order were all kinds of creeds and political preferences would be possible, failed to do so. And their pluralism was not, in fact, a viable form of order, according to their own terms. So this does not mean that pluralism is something that we should give up. But perhaps we should think about it more carefully and acknowledge the limits of, of this, let's say, political principle when we think about world order today. So this is more of a disciplinary question, I guess. Since your book is an intellectual history of a certain period uh, within thinking about international relations, we are wondering how you yourself see the relationship between these two disciplines. So do you think there is enough room for a sort of rapprochement? Do you think scholars on both sides don't talk to each other enough? And do you think they should be speaking to each other in more specific ways? So in the last, I think, 20 years or so, there's been a growing attention in IR, uh, international relations discipline, to its own history. So we've seen a lot of uh, scholars trying to come to terms with a disciplinary history to revise the kind of paradigms that make international relations, idealism, realism, the first debate, second debate, all these stories that we always uh, tell students and obviously that uh, are useful in some way to think about international relations. And so there was really an, let's say, opening among IR scholars to history. And uh, a lot of great historical research has come out of that. Also, a lot of research about the key thinkers that are kind of canonical in, in IR. And so in a sense, I was uh, very informed by this scholarship uh, that I found interesting, intriguing, and sometimes also useful for my own interests. As for the possibility to really engage in a fruitful conversation, 
I find that slightly problematic in a sense because history and IR at the end of the day have different aims. And while IR uses history perhaps to shed new light on its own history as a discipline or to understand better the kind of political categories that IR scholars use nowadays, at the end of the day, IR scholars try to do more than just tell a story about their own past. Um, There is more predictive ambition. And as a historian, let's say, I see myself often as a historian who's also interested in IR and perhaps contribute something to IR. There is always the kind of question that historians tend to get in conversations about IR, which is the uh, so what question. So, I mean, this is quite a a well-known thing. It's not uh, limited to conversations with IR. But at the same time, this is something that as a historian, I find quite challenging so what about this research about the past? You know, what does it tell us about today? So I feel like this conversation, the aim of it for me, is really to think more carefully about the implications of historical research for today, which I think are relevant. And history can tell us a lot about where we find ourselves today. It might not tell us that explicitly, and we might have to do this kind of thinking for ourselves. But there is still a lot to be taken from my intellectual history, I hope, for thinking about IR today, even if I don't put it in IR terms and in IR jargon, and I don't really use the same kind of terminology that IR scholars rely on. And so there is a space for dialogue, but I do think that it makes sense to keep these disciplines separate. And we try to help each other by bringing in more, um, let's say, sophisticated ideas about the past from the history uh, point of view and more uh, theoretical and um, conceptual constructions uh, from the IR point of view. So I hope to continue to enhance this kind of a, of a dialogue, but um, I'm not sure that this means that all walls uh, between disciplines should uh, collapse. I mean, nowadays it's very trendy to, to do kind of interdisciplinary research which is useful, and I'm I'm sure it helps to bring both disciplines forward. But I still think that we should we should not forget that at the end of the day, these branches of research do have different aims. I was wondering whether we could extend that reflection into a more political discussion, in the sense that recently there have been accusations of parochialism, uh, of Eurocentrism, which have been leveled against IR scholars. And maybe this relates to the lack of historicity or the lack of historical awareness IR scholars themselves have of the concepts they usually deploy. So it's not necessarily a question of collapsing these two disciplines, but of asking the questions, can you really do good IR if you don't have a historical consciousness in which tradition you operate in that sense? Yes, absolutely. So I think that this is um, a really positive change in IR, that uh, the growing awareness to the limits of the discipline has pushed many scholars to do new and exciting research. I think that IR needs to kind of come to terms with what it has and hasn't done as a discipline in the last let's say, century. And two of the main aspects that I think still need attention are uh, gender and race. I mean, this is not something that's new. Uh, Obviously, these problems have been central to a lot of the social sciences. The lack of attention to 
kind of racial diversity or the lack of space given to uh, women scholars and scholarship about women in IR. And so these things are really the big gaps that IR scholarship nowadays needs to front. And I think that historical research has a lot to do for uh, IR in that sense. Uh, for example, Bob Vitalis's new book on sort of the black history of IR in the United States has done, let's say, the first step in that direction. It has shown the, the big gap and uh, the really surprising uh, ignorance that IR scholars have about their own discipline and about the place of black people and black theory in it. Um, so this also touches on the way that IR is taught uh, and the kind of thinkers that make it to the IR canon. And so I think historians can really contribute to that by showing that the canon, if there is one, should be a wider and more diverse. In the field of gender, uh, we are now embarking on a project that I'm, I'm happy to be part of, which tries to highlight the place of women in IR. So women international thinkers, women who taught in IR courses in the UK and the US and elsewhere. So trying to really flag the contribution of women. And now the question that often gets uh, heard in this context is why these women were ignored. I mean, perhaps they just did not do important scholarship. And so now we're forcing uh, some kind of historical redemption for people who did not deserve it. I mean, some forgotten people are deserving of that. You know? So we, ha we hear this kind of argument quite often. But I don't think that this is the case. I think that often enough, these women were not given their due and were not given the right place in the history of the discipline for very contingent and typical reasons. They were just omitted from the official historiography very intentionally. Um, so I won't get into details now, but do stay tuned in because we are intending to publish an edited volume about that, uh, which Patricia Owens from the University of Sussex will edit and uh, I'm happy to contribute to. And this volume will be a resource for people who want to teach IR history uh, and the history of the discipline, but don't really have any knowledge about the women who contributed to it. So what we intend to do is really shed light on these women thinkers and help bring them to the fore of the discipline of international relations today. In recent years, the concept of globalization and globalism have acquired a fully fledged place in public discourse, while previously they were confined almost exclusively to specialistic spheres. So when figures such as Steve Bannon profile themselves as anti-globalists or nationalist leaders such as Jean-Marie Le Pen see themselves as a response to a one-sided globalization, what then do you think has been the role of academics in shaping or helping to shape the tools with which these debates are now waged? Do you think that this has been a beneficial or perhaps detrimental development as far as political language is concerned? And what do you yourself see as the public role of the conceptual historian on this matter? So yes, we do hear a lot nowadays about globalization, also about globalism. 
which I th- I see as two different things. Um, so I think really the attention to globalization came a lot from the fields of economics, cultural studies, sociology, not so much from political theory. There hasn't been perhaps enough debate on the kind of impact of uh, globalization on politics. There has been maybe in academia, but uh, not so much in the public sphere. And so I think that nowadays, actually, the debate suffers from lack of context and lack of depth. Uh, So a lot of people, like you mentioned, even Marine Le Pen and uh, Steve Bannon, but also President Trump, uh, refer to themselves as uh, anti-globalists or pro-globalists, which kind of changes. And they use globalism as a slur uh, without necessarily explaining what that might mean or without actually um, coming to terms with the historical meaning of this notion. And so I think that uh, while globalism is a very effective rhetorical tool nowadays in political debate, it doesn't necessarily have a very, uh, let's say, sophisticated meaning. And this is where historians can come in to uh, show the the limits and also the complexities of concepts like globalization and globalism, and to reflect the kind of diverse uh, meanings that they've had in history. So I think that globalization and globalism nowadays are used in a very superficial way, while actually what I'm trying to do in my book, at least, is to show that globalism had a much thicker meaning in the 1940s. Uh, And the notion that globalism is used in today as uh, the idea that uh, a state like the United States should prioritize other states' interests over its own in sheer contrast to its national interests and so on, is not really the way that globalism was uh, developed in the in the last 50 or 70 years. Uh, and so I'm trying to show that globalism meant different things. And actually, uh, according to some definitions, we can think about Trump as a globalist and his uh, intention to expand his military interests across borders and to influence political order in, in China, in Afghanistan, in other places, actually reveals reveals a globalist intention that is inherent in his uh, foreign policy, if he, if he has one. Uh, so this is still to be, to be seen. But definitely he cannot be considered an isolationist or a person who is uh, against any kind of global conception of politics. And so I think really by looking at the conceptual history of these common terms that we use every day, like globalization and globalism, and even the global as a political space, We can enrich our discourse and we can uh, further our understanding of what is going on today in the international sphere beyond the kind of uh, sheer rhetoric uh, that we hear all the time and, and see on Twitter and so on. Yeah, that's fantastic as an as an answer. Uh, we had one final question, which really concerns your projects for the future. So we wanted to ask what you were working on at the moment and if you're willing to speak on it, um, what we can expect from you in the in the coming years. Um, right. Well, a lot of uh, exciting projects are going on. So the first is uh, what I mentioned before, the kind of place of women in uh, international thought in the 20th century. So this is an edited volume that I've been part of the, let's say, 
conceptualizing team and um, contributing to. So uh, I look forward to that. So I'm also doing now a new project, which looks at empire and the conceptions of the international from a different perspective. So no longer the Anglo-American sphere, but now I'm moving my interest to uh, the Italian sphere and uh, exploring some ideas of liberal imperialism and international order in Italian political thought and from the Italian experience. So I'd really like to kind of reveal some of the conceptual similarities and differences with the better known English experience and British experience of empire. And so uh, this is really my, my new project that I'm just embarking on now. And we'll see what's going to come out of that. That's it for today. We will be back soon with the next episode of Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. Or thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.